أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم سبحانك اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم وعنده مفاتح الغيب لا يعلمها إلا هو ويعلم ما في البر والبحر وما تسقط من ورقة إلا يعلمها ولا حبة في ظلمات الأرض ولا رطب ولا يابس إلا في كتاب مبين. Do you want to do you want me to discuss this question now? So somebody sent a question uh, to the masjid about uh, artificial insemination. Uh, there's a sister who became pregnant uh, at one of the local mosques, which shall remain nameless. Uh, and um, I think somebody in the mosque or the, the, the leaders of the mosque were upset so that she became pregnant knowing that she's not um, married. And it turned out that she was saying she couldn't find anyone all these years to marry. And uh, she decided to have a child through artificial insemination. And uh, she produced the paperwork. So the question is, you know, if this is permissible or if this is not permissible. So, um, and this is one of the problems of, um, I mean, maybe this is not so interesting for everyone, but because... Uh, Riel asked, and actually some, this question has actually come up in private before in this mosque. Uh, basically, the whole issue of having children in Islam is very simple. Because you have to understand that one of the, one of the meta goals of the Sharia, what we call maqasid al-Sharia, we have five meta goals of the Sharia. What does this mean, meta goals of the Sharia? That the later fuqaha when they sat and, and they looked at all of this fiqh and all of the Qur'an and all of the sunnah, they said, they noticed that there was a pattern, that the entire body of Islamic thought was trying to somehow promote, protect, and advance five main things. So the first thing is life, the protection of life. So whenever there is life and death involved, the sharia always is going to err to the side of trying to pre- preserve life. So anything that could cause harm, anything that could cause a calamity, anything that can be dangerous, the Sharia tries to outlaw. Anything that could hurt somebody, you know, whenever there's life and death, the Sharia is always going to try to preserve life. Any life, it doesn't, has nothing to do with Muslim or not Muslim, faith or no faith, it's the preservation of life. The second, and is in no particular order, the second is religion. Meaning that there is the ability for somebody to practice and express and learn their faith. Not just necessarily Islam, uh, which is usually the, the context when the fuqaha talk about maqasid al-sharia. Of course, we would say you know, that we have to be able to preserve our faith. But also faith in general, somebody's ability to connect with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we don't allow anything, or the sharia rather will not allow anything that will harm the, the, the practice, the expression, the learning of what we call religion, of what we call deen, of what we call faith. Number three is the preservation of what we call a nasab or lineal relations. So the concept of nasab, the concept of lineage is of the utmost importance of Islam. 
And this is how Muslim uh, thinkers understand the Qur'an and understand the Sunnah as being the, the fundamental bedrock of society is the fact that we have this unit called the family. And, and we'll talk about that in a second. So that's number three. Number four, or, or in, again in no order, is al-aql, is, is, is the rational faculty. So anything that will preserve the rational faculty, anything that will preserve a person's ability to think, a person's ability to express, this is something that is protected. Which is why Islam does not allow any, anything that intoxicates Al-Muskirat, anything that has alcohol in it, anything that has some kind of drug, uh, whether it be barbiturins, whether it be uh, psychotropic, all of these things, unless, of course, there's a medical situation. But these type of drugs, when they're presented to the Sharia, the Sharia will say, no, this is haram. Why? Because it clouds the intellect. And the intellect is the, is the organ that receives the message from the Qur'an, the message from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Which makes us morally responsible If we don't have the aql If we don't have the rational faculty Then we have no taklif We're not morally responsible So a child They're not fully in their reason They have no moral response So you can't say if a child breaks something You can't say that the child did something bad Because there is no good and bad for that type of person Anyway so al-aql And the fifth one Is sort of wealth and property That the ability for somebody to own to have, to build, to, to make a living, so on and so forth. So when the, when the ulama looked at the, the body of Islamic literature, and these are the later fuqaha, they noticed that these were the five things that Islam tries to protect. So whenever we have a question that deals with one of these, it ha- it's important that we under, because when I give the answer, it's important to understand the background. The background is that Islam is obsessed with preserving what we call lineage and lineal lines between human beings. Why is this important? We have a society and we are all people and the unit of the society is going to be the family unit. Meaning, if I have, if somebody came for example, let's say we all live in this town, okay? If somebody came to uh, to harm this town, to attack this town. I mean, I'm, and I'm giving a very simple like type of example. Of course, it's much more complicated than that. But let's just think of like an, on a small scale. Uh, if somebody came to attack this town, immediately, every one of us, our natural uh, reaction, almost knee-jerk reaction, would be: How do we stop? How do we protect? How do we save? How do we come together? You know, you would talk to your neighbors, you would talk to your family, you'd get on the phone, you'd have all of these, you know, WhatsApp groups, the social media, everyone would be trying to mobilize to protect it. Islam argues that the reason behind this instinct of protection is because there is some kind of family unit at the core, the, the smallest core of the community. If we did not have the family unit, over time, then no one would have any vested interest to save or to do anything. So... For example, if you're like an expat and you go somewhere and you work for several years somewhere else in the world, I mean, you don't necessarily want harm, but you know, if something goes bad, you just you know, go to the airport, get your first flight and you leave. You're not thinking of, I've got to protect. You're not thinking, I've got to save. Because you have no, it uh, doesn't mean you're a bad person, but it's just not natural. Because you're, you're, your instinct is, I'm going to go home. Home, the concept of home is tied to the family. And that's why we have uh, why do we honor 
our armed forces? Or why do we honor the police? Because they protect us. Why do they protect us? Where did this concept of duty come from? Because they're protecting their brothers and their sisters and their mothers and their fathers and so on and so forth. So Islam is absolutely obsessed with this issue of lineage. When it comes to the issue of artificial insemination or any of these type of new ways of, um, of fertility and things like this, the most important thing for the faqih is, is there one man and one woman involved through marriage producing this child or not? Because the idea of the family and the idea of lineage is that it is produced in our understanding through the marriage of one man and one woman. Not outside of that. So in this situation, the sharia would say, yes, this is, this is a problem. This is a, a, a sin that a woman would, uh, would, would have artificial insemination even if the, that, the donor is known. Because that donor then becomes the father the biological father of that child. So that nesab is established in the sharia, from the sharia point of view, that that man becomes a mihrim on that child, whether the child is a, a, a boy or a girl. And if that man has another spouse and has another children, then those children are brothers and sisters, or half-brothers and half-sisters, whatever, but there is still that lineage. So when we don't follow the, the marriage producing a child, if, if the married couple is able to produce a child, the problem is then we start to lose our bear who is related to who. That becomes the problem. But if there is some kind of insemination between a husband and a wife using the man's sperm and the, and the, uh, the, the, spout, the woman's uh, uterus, that is fine. So uh, off, uh, pregnancy does not have to happen in the married couple only through intercourse. But the offspring has to come from a married, a married couple. Uh, so in this case, we, the Sharia would say that this, is, this, is, would be in, not, this would be haram, this would be not permissible. Uh, because we have violated this fundamental understanding that the offspring will come from a married a couple of a man and a woman. Is this clear? Does anyone have any questions about, about this? So there's no confusion in the future? Because I know it comes up, it's come up several times. What's about the actions? Yes. Since now we know the lineage, we know the father, the daughter. So what's the... This is about nasab, not aql. I mean... Uh, the... Yes, aql meaning, the preservation of aql meaning we, the sharia will want to put a stop to anything that, can, that would harm a person's rational faculty. So if there's like a public health issue, like with our water or something like there's too much mercury or I don't know, something like that, the sharia would, would be very aggressive in trying to stop that, clean that, protect that, because it has a long-term impact in, in making the, the rational faculty deficient. Because... That's how we operate. We operate through our intellect. We operate through our rational faculty. So if we don't have that, then we, then we don't have anything. So this issue has nothing to do with the aql. I'm just saying that these are the maqasid, the five maqasid of the sharia. It's not enough just to know who the father and the mother is. It has to be through nikah. It has to be through 
a wedding. Or else anyone could sleep with anyone and have any offspring. And as long as what is known... So it's not simply it's the father and the mother are known. That it has to be produced from nikah. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ said, وُلِدْتُ مِن نِكَاحٍ وَلَمْ أُولِدْ مِن سِفَاحٍ That I have been... I am the product of marriage, meaning all the way, all the way back to Adam السلام, not the uh, product of fornication. So um, relations outside of the marriage and therefore offspring outside of the marriage, the Sharia sees as a sin of itself, irrespective of whether the lineage or the father and the mother are known or not known. That, that is seen as a, as a sin. <laughs> no, 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 not before the offering, before the assimilation, there is a fatiha. That's fine. If, as I said, uh, uh, if, let's say there's a man and a woman that are married, okay, uh, and they cannot conceive naturally, the, the question is can they use insemination tactics? The Sharia will say yes, as long as it's from him to her. Very simply. So yes, in that case, that would be, that would be fine. Yes? Yes, so adoption, uh, or, or the term in Islam is kifalatul yatim, or you know, taking care of, of the orphan, is amongst the greatest acts of worship that we can that we can do, and because of the the structure of the modern uh, state and the government and things like that, and especially as being a minority, we are allowed to adopt uh, to the point that even if you adopt, the child can take the name uh, as long as that child knows growing up the real name, if the real name is known, or that they know that they are not your biological child. Uh, to, to respect again this concept of lineage. But yes, adoption in this case would be permissible uh, and would be actually highly recommended. Uh, in addition, if a man and a woman, or a husband and wife rather, are unable to conceive, they can also adopt a child. And in this case, the Sharia allows the... Uh, Mehrim status to be established between the, the couple and the child as the child is raised out of necessity. So let's say me and my wife, we adopt a girl, a baby girl. And she's being raised in our family like our child. Th- then the Sharia would say, I am like her real father in the sense that she is haram for me. But I am not her father biologically. So it's a, it's a, it's a half and half. Let's say we adopt a young boy, and as the boy is raising, then this boy is haram for my wife. My wife is haram to the boy out of necessity, because I mean, how else can you, then we live, and how else could we function? It would be impossible. So the Sharia would forgive this issue of non-biological lineage, but would say the haramness or haram status would have been established. So the short answer is yes, adopt. Yes, yes. Again, out of necessity. Bid darura. Assalamu alaikum. So, so I have a question. Suppose um, the wife is not able to bear children, but the husband finds a willing, I guess, surrogate mother? 
So the problem with the surrogacy is that we have violated the rule of the husband and the wife together. So we have added now a third like genetic component. Okay? And I know that all of these things might not sound like cool and, and acceptable and I really don't care. I'm just telling you what, what, how the Sharia looks at it. It's our job to try to digest it. I, my, my job is not to make Islam cool. I'm trying, but, but... So then the problem is that we have added a third genetic component. So let's say we do that. Let's say me and my wife, we can't have children and then we have a surrogate. Well... The Sharia doesn't understand this concept of surrogacy. All the Sharia is going to be is going to say is I had a child with another woman. If it's my sperm has been used to inseminate another woman, then now this is like my second wife or something like that. And if it's if we're not married, then it's been out of wedlock. So the Sharia actually looks at it very simply. All I know there's a lot of compli, you know, there's sperm banks and now there's milk banks because we have lineages established all through through nursing. But the Sharia is very simple. The Shia just comes back to like a husband and a wife that are married. The offspring is from the genetic stuff of the two of them, involving only the genetic stuff of the two of them. Yes. You have to go like this. When you go like this, and I, I, maybe you're saying, La ilaha illallah, this guy is unbelievable, La ilaha illallah. But you have to go like this, so I see you. Sorry, what situation? The yeah. No, this is a separate issue because in this case, this woman has. A, I mean, we just read the. He just showed me the. I keep pointing. It's not real. It says I'm just reading the text message from the phone. He's just the messenger. <laughs> Unless he's hiding something, Allah alam, I don't know. So the, the message says that the woman uh, has received artificial insemination. She doesn't say from whom, or, but I mean, uh, no, it's, it has nothing to do with, yani, your genetic material doesn't make you a Muslim. You know, you saying, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah makes you a Muslim. So, Yeah, that, that imam will, will take care of that imam. That's another... Uh, I won't tell you what the mosque is. We'll go to the mosque, you know, maybe next Friday and we'll, we'll meet him out back. That's a separate issue. No, the child is going to be Muslim. So now what does this lady do? This lady is pregnant. And this is, according to the message, somebody in our community, in the wider community. So this lady is pregnant. She's Muslim. She did this thinking that it was okay. And now I'm going to tell her, no, this was haram. So she says, okay, what do I do now? I say, astaghfirullah, don't do it again. Have the baby. Raise the baby the best you can because this baby is your child. Try to find out who the biological father is so that that nesab is established because you need to know, you know that this child doesn't end up marrying their brother or their sister. And that's it. End of story. Allahu ghafurun rahim. As far as what you do and how you live, and Allah is, mer- Allah is merciful. Allah, for- Allah forgives anything and everything, inshaAllah. No, I mean, the mother is going to raise the child. Did you say shahada when you were... No, khalas, no, okay. How many, how many Muslim parents and the, the children go right, the children go left? No, there's another issue. 
احنا we don't have religion established by Nasab, we have religion established here. Uh, it's not fornication because fornication is specifically sexual relations outside of marriage. Well, I'm saying that you're, that lady is not my wife, but I want to have kids. Since my wife can't have kids, wouldn't that be fornication? Uh, no, because you see, it, when you come to halal and haram, all the words mean specific things. So what is fornication? Fornication means sexual relations outside of marriage. They're going to take uh, semen from one from, and inseminate the woman. There's no sexual act. It's like a chemical, like it's like a, a medical lab or something like that. So we say it's a haram act. But no, this is not fornication because fornication is something specific. You see, that that's very important that when we say something, we have to be precise. The sloppy, not that you're being sloppy, but the sloppiness of Islam is what got us into this mess. Is that everyone's like, oh, this is this, this is that. No, I mean, the Sharia is very specific. Because halal, what does haram mean? Haram means that if you do something, knowingly, this act, you can be punished for at Yom Al-Qiyamah. That's a huge thing. And that's why the things in Islam that are haram are very few. And the proof of it is that we can write them, we can make a list. The things that are halal are most things. And the proof is we can't write them down because there's this most of life. So when somebody says something is haram, that's a serious statement. Yani there has to be proof that it's haram. There has to be some dalil, an ayah, a, a, a hadith, some kind of precedent or something like that. But people going around saying, oh, this is haram, this is haram, this is nonsense. That's haram, saying everything is haram. Yes. Yes, so the, the, the adoption that's haram in Islam is that you take a child and the child becomes like your biological child, which is to mix up the nasab. So in the modern age, with the way that the system is, because now you can't, you can't go to the adoption agency and say, I'm going to have kefalatul yatim. What's that? Adopt or no adopt, you know, so, and, and, the, and the orphans and taking care of the orphans is a huge, uh, one of the greatest acts of worship that we can, we can do. And um, especially with this unfortunate refugee situation with so many parts, of, and most of them are Muslim, that it's almost like, almost, it's like almost an obligation on us to try to do something. So in this case, we should, and we were encouraged to, and it's a big qurba, it's a big act of worship, with the conditions that I gave, that we just make sure that everyone knows as they're growing up who is who and you know who's going where and things like that. So, uh, I'm a woman. I'm not a woman. You're a woman, <laughs> and you, your neighbor. Uh, and you have a child and you're nursing your own child, your neighbor brings you the child and you nurse that child, then you have become the mother to this child. Uh, yes, your husband cannot marry your daughter. And your children are now siblings to that child. Uh, 
that child's parents for you? I said, why is it so complicated now? And I got all lost in my head. Now I have like a big knot in my head. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. Well, the Prophet Shayma was his sister. And later in life, when she came to him, she said, you know, you are my brother. And she showed him this place on her shoulder where he bit her. Sallallahu alayhi wa so he laughed because he remembered, yeah, that was, that was me. So yes, yeah, so the children are, are, are siblings. Your husband cannot marry your daughter, so that's fine. Her, the child's parents for your children. No, it's, it's, only, it's only that child. Yeah, so say your neighbor has two kids and you only nurse one of them. The other kid is not, yeah, is not, uh, the lineage is not established. They're not sibling to your other children. It's only that one child. Why? Because the child, the, 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 there is DNA uh, stuff in, in breast milk. Uh, and it has a, obviously a technical term that I clearly can't remember right now. So I'm saying DNA stuff. But anyway... So why is lineage established? Because the, the, the taking in of that uh, material physically makes you the mother of that one child, not of all of the, the other children. And then the fuqah have a dif- difference of opinion of how long that lasts. Like how old can the child be? So Sayyidah Aisha, السلام, she had a unique opinion that there is no age limit to the nursing establishing lineage. So if a woman had preserved some of her breast milk and froze it, or if uh, there was some type of medicine that could give a woman uh, the ability to lactate, and uh, I ingested that through like, you know, it was mixed in like an orange juice or something like that, and I did, and I ingested that, then according to Sayyidah Aisha, I would then become the son of this woman, even at my age now. And this, as funny as this opinion sounds, this opinion actually is very significant in this issue of adoption. Because if, if a woman were able to induce lactation and was able to allow the child to have it, then all of these problems of lineage and everything would go away because it would have been established and we would follow the opinion of Sayyidah Aisha. There's a difference of opinion amongst the fuqaha. How many uh, times will it establish? So any, the, the, the most basic opinion is that even if it's one uh, rada'a, one nursing, it will establish the, the lineage. I, have, I will bring you some no, no, reference so, because it's, it's under Bukhari or so on. There was yes. a story where, where the person found out after having three children that uh, the husband gets breasted by the same person and one of the Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, so the, the different madahib, they have different opinions of how many times you have to nurse to establish it. So, so because they were already married, he's trying to preserve the marriage. Yeah. What's your opinion on how many times? 
Uh, no, it depends on the situation. If somebody came and was married and had kids, and then they found out that he had nursed, uh, you know, his mom, her mom had nursed him, and that they are siblings, we would say no. Follow the opinion that w- that would allow the nur- that nursing not to have counted. Or the, no, the more stringent one. And maybe she, he was nursed once. Mm-hmm. Because the position, the, the situation that's in front of me would be one in which there's a family unit that could be broken. So we don't want to break the family. So we would find every type of opinion to keep the family together. Mm-hmm. But if, you know, if it's just like, um, you know, the kids are infant and something like that, and they really want, you know, them to be siblings and he only nursed once and then she stopped lactating. We said, no, you can follow the opinion that said one nursing is enough. So it always depends on the situation. You can't, you can't give a... When, when somebody asks a question, a specific question, you give a specific answer based on that specific question. If somebody's asking something in generally, then you can give a general response. But the general response is not, does not does not fall in each instance. Each, it depends. Every instance is unique. And you have to be very careful in answering those questions so you don't mess things up. Anything? Yes? Why are you hiding in the room? Ah, okay. If possible, if possible. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's it was anonymous and it's impossible. Then that's it, and that's and that's why we have to make. Yani, our job is to understand what's right from what's wrong, and try to stick with what's right and avoid what's wrong. If somebody falls in the wrong, we all fall in the wrong. We make a tawbah, we move on. I don't know if if this sister wants to come and uh, talk to, uh, talk to me. We can talk and we can we can help her out. Inshallah, we pass no judgment. Just uh, he uh, he's, the, he's the question was sent to us, so we're just trying to help them out. Any other questions about this? Okay. <clears throat> so today, Inshallah, we're going to talk about um, the story of Lut, alayhi salam. And then, and then Shuaib salam. So last week I said, and I'm sorry for all of the, the Skype stuff. I hope it was, I didn't uh, bother you guys too much with that. It worked pretty well. It worked pretty well? Okay. So then I can, I can just move then. I can just keep doing it. <laughs> but then you have to remain awake every Yeah, that was, that was a killer, man. You guys were killing me. And the thing is that Saturday, the last Saturday I had to do something early in the morning. It, it was a rough, rough day. But at least I get to give my class in my pajamas and my t-shirt. That was, that was, that was nice. Okay, so the, uh, the reason I didn't want to get into loot is because 
uh, well, I mean, maybe it's obvious for some people, but I wanted, I wanted to uh, be more meticulous when we cover the story of Lut, even though the story is actually very short from the, from the story's point of view. But because it deals with an issue that is so much talked about, uh, I, wanted to address, I wanted to address sort of the, what Islam says uh, about the issue of homosexuality, because this clearly is one of the stories of the stories of the Prophet that deals with that. So again, as, as I was, when we were talking to the young man, uh, Islam is, when the Sharia is always very hyper-specific when it uses words and when it uses terms and things like that. And because the things that are haram are less than the things that are halal, it's always easier to understand the haram because they're always well-defined. So what is the impermissibility of this issue of homosexuality from the perspective of the Sharia? And that is simply the act itself, the sexual act, the homosexual act itself, that is what is considered haram. Everything else before that, there is no ruling on it because the Sharia only deals with actions. It doesn't deal with feelings. I feel this and I feel that. There's no ruling about that. It's how I act on those things that concerns the Sharia. So somebody that has inclinations to this or has inclinations to that, that's the Sharia is almost agnostic towards that. That deals with something else. It deals with akhlaq, it deals with ethics and things like that. But as far as what, what does the Sharia say? It doesn't say anything because we're dealing with acts. And in this case, the other thing to keep in mind is that it deals with acts that are done in public. Of course, if somebody were to do something haram in private, it would be haram. But also the Sharia almost doesn't care what happens behind closed doors. And this is very, very important because we have a, our idea of privacy in Islam is a huge value, is a huge ethical value. We do not believe in this sort of complete transparency and you have to know everything about me and I have to know everything about you and tell me everything about you and I'll tell you all my secrets. Islam doesn't see that. As a matter of fact, Islam sees that almost, almost as it's sinful. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has manifested Himself upon us with His satr, with His Veiling, that he has veiled my privacy from you and he has veiled your privacy from me. So when you do something that is private, that no one knows about it, it means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even though he has ordained at that moment that you fall, he has also ordained at that moment that your, your falling is hidden from the rest of creation. And in that is a sign to come back to him. And it is none of our right to violate that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, has veiled. Unless it involves like some kind of like public, you know, I don't know, if you found like some super villain that was, you know, throwing water in like the main water line. I mean, yeah, you would have to expose that person. But I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about our day-to-day life. So what happens behind in the privacy of one's home and, you know, between people that no one knows about, the Sharia is not concerned about finding that out. All the Sharia is saying is that this act is halal, this act is haram, so on and so forth. The issue with the, the story of Lut salam, is that this act was done in public and it was almost done in a coercive way. And we're going to talk about that. It was almost done by force without necessarily consent. 
and public, in the streets, in public gatherings, and things like that. And that's why we have the story of Sidna Lut Also to indicate that this is, this is something that the Sharia sees as haram. What is haram? The act itself. And I don't want to get more technical than that because, because of the audience. But it's the act itself that is haram, which is a very specific, well-defined... I mean, in the Sharia, the fuqh had no problems defining these things in, in extreme detail. Uh, that alone is what, is what is haram. So this is not, we're not here to condemn people, we're not here to hate people, we're not here to dislike people, we're here to tell the story as it is and learn what kind of lessons we can learn from it. And there are some things that we believe that work with the dominant culture and there are things that we believe that don't work with the dominant culture. But part of the way that this modern society is structured is we are allowed to, to, to believe that. If this is something that we believe and we hold, that's fine as long as we don't violate anybody else. Does that make sense? Are there any questions about those, those issues? No. Okay. Who was Sayyidina Lut salam? Remember he, we said that he was a cousin of Sayyidina Ibrahim. A paternal cousin. So Lut's father was a brother to Ibrahim's father. And many of the MBA we're going to talk about, I think almost all of them maybe, we will, that are in our sources, are somehow related to Sidna Ibrahim salam, which is why Ibrahim salam has such a big, uh, the Qur'an says, oh, yeah, the, Allah calls him an ummah. Himself, Allah calls this one person, Ibrahim, an entire nation. So he, his, his position in, in the hierarchy of, of MBA is very, is very massive. And so Ibrahim salam, and Lut salam, were contemporaries. And they were traveling together between the Iraq area and the Sham area, you know, moving from place to place, uh, fleeing, you know, bad situations to bad situations. And then Lut salam, he settled in what is current today, Jordan. Uh, so the, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, which borders uh, actually from the Dead Sea, at night you can see the lights of Jerusalem across the Dead Sea. So Amman, Jordan, very close to uh, Jerusalem. And uh, the area of Sodom or Sodom, where uh, Lut settles, is said to have been around that area where the Dead Sea is. And I mean, these are, it's not exact. The, these type of facts are not necessarily exact. But most likely, <coughs> it was in that area. Which is why some of the fuqaha dislike uh, using the water of the Dead Sea. So some of the Maliki fuqaha, for example, will, will say well, it's, it's disliked. They will say it's haram, but it will be disliked uh, to use the water or the salt, and, and some of the other fuqaha don't. Because today it's a major, not only is it a tourist attraction in the, in the kingdom of Jordan, but it's also the minerals that they, is very rich in minerals. And a lot of these minerals are used, and, and it's part of the economy and things like that. So that's why the fuqaha have different opinions about these things. When you follow the story of Lut, unless, I, unless I'm mistaken, there's no... Nothing that I could find that the people of Lut disbelieved necessarily in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or committed some kind of like shirk, like they weren't known to have worshipped an idol or worship a tree or something like that. But they were known for this act, uh, this, uh, this act that Lut came to try to uh, dispel. 
And in some of the hadith that talk about the story of Lut salam, that these was the first community to engage in the homosexual act in the history of mankind. So it was not necessarily something that was known or practiced before, but this was sort of like the, the community that, that, that engaged in it. <clears throat> so Lut salam, and this, this story I should also say, even though it's a shared story with, the, um, with, the, with Jewish sources, there are some massive significant differences uh, in the details. So sometimes we have to, it's, it's important for us to know what the differences are so we can keep uh, lessons and the story and stuff like that straight. So Lut, السلام, like all of the other MBA, you know, he's, he's preaching and he's warning and he's cautioning and, and he's trying to get people to, to see the error of their ways. He's trying to, you know, get them to do something better. And this was very difficult because he himself and his own family was attacked. So some of the other MBA we talked about, they were like ridiculed and of course Ibrahim was thrown in the fire, so I mean that was pretty violent. Um, but Lut also was, this was a hostile situation. So when you go into a group of people that are all doing A, and you tell them no, you have to do B, most likely you're not going to be welcomed. So uh, just naturally, you can understand that the job of a prophet is, is very difficult. It, you're, you're always alone and you know, not many necessary people believe with you. And in the hadith that the Prophet ﷺ, um, the, the many hadith that talk about the Isra and the Ma'raj, uh, the Prophet ﷺ, he says that when he met with the Anbiya and, and he talks about what will happen Yawm Al-Qiyamah with all of the Anbiya, and he said some of the prophets will come Yom Al-Qiyamah, and they'll have nobody, no followers are with them. They'll be all by themselves. Some of the Anbiya will come and they'll be like massive followers, like the Sidna Muhammad Sallallahu will have a lot of followers, Sidna Ibrahim Sallallahu a lot of followers. But someone like Sidna Nuh, only a few people believed with him. You know, Lut السلام, at the end, it's only him and his uh, daughters uh, that flee. So, we don't look at these things and, and make like a statistical analysis and say, oh, that means Lut failed, uh, Ibrahim is like so-so, uh, Nuh, you know, almost all of humanity died, so that's a complete failure. It took him 900 years. We don't look at it like that. That's not the, the, the lesson that we glean from this. The job of the, of the messenger, of the prophet, is to make the message clear. That's it. The job is not to make somebody believe. The job is to make the message clear. Like us, we cannot make each other believe. Even the, the best of creation, وسلم, Allah tells them, You, Ya Muhammad, you cannot guide the people that you want. You can't choose this person, this person, this person, and make them guide. We, Allah is saying, we are the ones that guide whom we want. What's the Prophet's job, وسلم, or any of the Anbiya, is simply to preach and give the message in a clear, complete way. That's their only job. It doesn't matter what happens after that, that's for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So as we read these stories, we see the same theme through all of the anbiya. Their only job was to, uh, uh, to, pre- to give this da'wah, to give this message under the, the most harsh circumstances. Almost the th- threat of loss of life, loss of livelihood, uh, loss of family. You know, things like that. But when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala calls them, they obey. So, alhamdulillah, 
we don't have this, you know, burden. I mean, imagine having this is like your vocation, you know, alhamdulillah. But in this is a lesson for us in how we raise our children and how we advise one another and things like that in that we cannot make, we can't make the behavioral change. The behavioral change comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But our job is to be the best versions of ourselves and to present the best version of Islam that we know how and the rest is up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Lut salam, he's in this very hostile, very strange environment. I mean, try to, try to, well maybe not try to, but picture it. But I mean, understand at least rationally that this is something that's happening out in public, non-stop. Uh, and people are being forced into it. So it's, it's a pretty crazy situation. And then, a f- you know, a few hundred miles away, these angels, they stop by to Ibrahim salam to tell him that you and your wife Sara are going to have a child, meaning Ishaq salam. Uh, and uh, Abraham, as they're leaving, Abraham says, you know, where are you going? They're like, oh, we're going to Lut. We're going, you know, to your cousin Lut because his people, they're, they're not believing and, and Allah has ordered us to, to destroy this area. So Ibrahim salam, he starts uh, interceding and he starts saying, don't, please, t- telling the angels, please don't do that. My cousin Lut and Ibrahim salam, he loved Lut very much. Even though he was his cousin, he was like his brother, like his, his best friend, as it were. They grew up together. So he's very concerned that the angels are going to go to, to, to this area in, in, the, in the, the Dead Sea, what is today the Dead Sea area. And he's concerned about his cousin's life and his cousin's family's life. So because of the presence of Sayyidina Lut salam, Ibrahim salam intercedes to try to save the community. And that's a very important sign for us. Again, because as I said, it's not about here to judge people or to hate people or anything like that. But when there are good people present, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by the presence of these good people preserves the rest of the community. And there's a whole literature that we have in, in, our, um, in our sources that talk about the abdal, that talk about the awtad, that talk about the qutb, that talk about... These are all these different ranks of the awliya that are hidden, that we don't know who they are or where they are. Uh, but because of their presence, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala causes the rain to fall and causes the, you know, the crops to grow and you know, causes the sick to be healed and, and things like that. And one of the reasons why we don't know who they are is that we are meant to treat each other with respect. Because we don't know what is on the inside of each other. So anyway, so Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi he's trying to intercede with, uh, with, with the angels and the angels tell him, no, you know, we're, Lut is going to be saved and we know more than you what's the situation, you know, because we, are, we have been sent. Anyway, so the angels, there are two or there are three, you know, different sources and different narrations. They finally arrive at the gate of the city <clears throat> and they see uh, Lut salam had two daughters and uh, they see them, the angels see Lut's daughters, you know, drawing water from a well. So they ask them if you know if do you, do you live nearby? Are you from this area? You know they know who the who the because as I said the angels can take the form of, of human beings, uh, and um, they want you know they're acting like they want some sort of like rest like they want some food or they want a shelter or something like that. So the daughter said yes, we live nearby. You know wait here we'll go tell our father and we'll come back. 
And one of the things about the angels um, manifesting is when they manifest in the form of, of humans, they are you know, very striking. So the angels, when they would come, even though they kind of look like a human being or like a man in this case, but they're, they're not like any ordinary man. Like in the hadith of Gabriel, السلام, when Gabriel comes in the form of a human into the majlis, the Sahaba said a man came with jet black hair. His thawb was extremely white in the middle of the desert. And none of us knew who he was. And then he went to the Prophet and he put his knees by his knees. You know that hadith, Islam, Iman, Ahsan, that hadith. <coughs> so even though Gabriel came in the form of the man, he looked very odd. You know, jet black hair, perfectly, you know, white clothes. He looked very strange. So when the daughters go back to Sayyidina Lut they say, you know, Dad, we, we saw these two men uh, that arrived and they don't look like any of the men that we've ever seen. I mean, they're very striking. And I'm fearful of them from the community. This is where this issue of coercion, it's very important that we understand this part of the story. She said, I am fearful of them from the community. Meaning that the community, if the people see them, because they're striking and because they're attractive and because they're, they're new, they will be forced into this act. So this is not a story just about inclination and just about how somebody feels or somebody's identity. This is about coerced uh, uh, homosexual act in public. Essentially is what the story is about. So Lut alayhi salam, he, he brings them in and he starts to... Um, you know, converse with them and they're, gonna, they're there to tell him, you know, this is what's going to go down and you're going to have to come with us and, you know, your job is, is essentially done. That, that's, you've, you've done what you, you could and قَدَّرَ اللَّهُ مَا شَعْفَى This is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants. In the meantime, Sayyidina Lut, Sam's wife, she found a way and she indicated to some of the people of the town that there were these strangers that were with them. So while Lut salam, is in his house uh, talking with the angels and his daughters are there, a mob appears outside of his house. And the angels, they, they kind of came like late afternoon, like right before, like between Asr and Maghrib time. This is when they first entered in the city. So by the time this episode happens, it's like nighttime now. Maghrib has come, I mean the sun has set, it's nighttime, and there's a mob of people outside of, of Lut's house, alayhi salam. You know, banging on the door, like, let us in, we want these people, you know, th- that kind of thing. And at this time, Sayyidina Gabriel, say, uh, Gabriel salam, descends, and like when Sayyidina Muhammad salam, left in the hijrah, and, and the eyes of the people became blind, there was some kind of like blinding effect on these people, and Lut salam, and his daughters, they quickly escape. Some of the narration said his wife came with them. Some of them they say that his wife didn't make it because his wife is not from the people that was saved. The narrations that say that the wife did not go with them, well, okay, she's, she stayed back and, and, and died with everyone else. The narrations that said that the wife came say that one of the instructions of the angels was as we are leaving, you know, we're going to climb this mountain because the, the Dead Sea, if, if you're in front of the Dead Sea, behind the Dead Sea are all of these like mountains. Uh, as we climb the mountains, anything that you hear from what, what you just left, don't turn around and don't look at it. 
And because the, the destruction of the people of Lut is so graphic in the Qur'an, the, of course there's a lot of yelling and screaming and you know, bedlam and all this kind of things. No one looked back except the wife of Sayyidina Lut. And then she looked back and then she sort of perished with them. So that's one, one narration. And Lut السلام, and his two daughters, they flee. And then that's the story of Qawm Lut. And um, I lost my train of thought. <clears throat> it happens when you get old, you just lose your train of thought. <clears throat> so the Lut alayhi salam, there's no, there's no more, uh, much more to the story. Uh, but I think his daughters will play a role, yes, with Shu'aib. Because one of the narrations says that one of Lut's daughters was either the mother or grandmother of Sidna Shu'aib, who is the next story that we're going to talk about. So again, you see, everything is related familiarly somehow to Sidna Ibrahim. Which is why Ibrahim has such a big, a big role. But before I go to Shaib, are there any questions about the story of Sayyidina Lut? Yes. You said there were differences between the Judeo-Christian tradition and the Islamic <clears throat> version of the story. And what are they? I don't know all of them, but there's something about uh, Lut and his daughters and his daughters like got him drunk and did something, I don't know, something like that to him. Um, so, yeah, which is obviously, we do completely <laughs> reject that because that's not, when we say prophet, that means something specific. So it means somebody that is infallible, masum, min al-khata. He's infallible from mistake. They can't fall into mistake. Uh, I mean, they can get sick and they die and they, they, they're human things, but they, they, they're not going to make a moral mistake or else they would not be a prophet. They would not be a sign of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So all of those things about uh, David, uh, or was it Solomon? Solomon uh, fell in love with his generals, you know, like this whole like King Arthur, Guinevere type of situation. No, we, that's impossible. How could you say that about Sayyidina Sulaiman This was a prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So a lot of those stories... Parts of the stories are, are completely incompatible with, with our understanding of, of these stories. Well, one, they don't come in our books, in our narrations. But two, it violates the, the essential meaning of what it means to be a prophet. Uh, no, I mean the 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 reason for the adab is that they that they were engaging in this act publicly, and it seems that that even to the point that they would have forced somebody uh, to do it. Um, but I see where you're going with with the question. Uh, now, I, don't, I have no, I, I didn't come across anything to, to make it seem like they were like innocent people like being held like in jail, you know. No, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. Meaning that they were, you couldn't escape it if you were in that community and, you know, everyone was engaging in it. But they were going to the angels because they were going to co- coerce them into it. Uh, 
<clears throat> well, the f I think the first thing is that we have to be clear about what our moral system and ethical system says about, about these things. So there is, no, uh, there is no sanctioning of the homosexual act in the Sharia. It's not something that is allowed, you know, just like we're not supposed to lie and we're not supposed to steal and you know it's a sin i mean the act is a sin but that alone is the sin it's the act itself it's not necessarily feelings or you know you know inclinations or or something like that the other thing is that we have to respect people's privacies and uh, we have to continually advocate that we want and promote the almost sanctity of privacy because we're losing that in, in so many ways not just in this but in, in many other aspects we're losing privacy and what people do privately is their business it's really we don't i don't care what people do privately just like i don't want them to care about what i do privately but that's the thing it has to be a two-way street and um at the same time our job is to be um helpful of people that want help, uh, loving of people that need to be loved, <coughs> merciful uh, to, towards people that need uh, mercy. Um, and fundamentally, we, we respect and we love all of humanity and all of its complexities and all of its, its di dynamics. So the story is not in any way, like we're not supposed to take the story and go act on it. It's not the point of the story. Just like all, just like, you know, all of the other stories, they're, they're stories that we take these lessons of perseverance, of... Of, of, of being pure and sincere in our worship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala what we take and we act on is the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu so um, you know we have to find a, a middle way in, in I think teaching what our moral we can never you know uh, we can't have like a double standard no we have a perspective on this if somebody asks you know this is, our, this is what Islam says there is no room in the sharia whatsoever uh, for the act of homosexuality, and it's not my, it's not, I didn't make it. I don't, I don't own it. You know, that's just the way it is. That does not mean that we can't find a way to be civil with people and to live with people. And we look, we live in this country. It's a secular country. Uh, there is no religious institution. Marriage in this country is not a religious. It's a civil engagement and all of these type of things. So there's there's no room for us to say do this or don't do this. But amongst our community, this is how our community functions. And I think we just have to find a way in that middle to talk about it uh, if it comes up and to, you know, be respectful of, of everyone um, and just more focused on the betterment of ourselves and our community. I mean, that's, that's how I would look at it. Maybe that's not very helpful, but yeah.
expect that everyone else should also consider to be the norm. Uh, so it's not simply the question of giving respect, but then that point in time is fine. But but if it is expected that others not only consider it to be a norm, but accept that as well. Well, it's, 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 not, it's not the norm because the vast majority of the world's population does not see it as a norm. So this, this is, it's a norm. The reason we say it's a norm is because there's an extreme amount of social pressure and political pressure for us to accept it as normal in this country. And maybe it will be one day completely normal. And maybe in some liberal areas like you know, this area, the coasts, it, will, it is already like that. But statistically... And this is where the real issue is becomes as uh, of this uh, topic globally, is that it's not a universal human right. Not because I don't make it a human right, it's because there are sw huge swaths of population, Muslim-majority countries, you know, uh, the Far Eastern countries, other religious institutions that, that don't accept this as a norm. That doesn't mean that we have to kill and persecute and, 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 and harm. And it is, that, this doesn't equal that, but it is not like you know, uh, the freedom of movement or like the freedom of like not being tortured or it's not, it's not going to be accepted as a, as a universal right at least anytime soon that I can see. And this is what the issue is, is with where your question is coming from is, well, it's not. I mean, statistically, it's not, it's not like that. So that's where we have a, uh, a, a problem for us because we have one belief of this in, from one perspective, but we also are citizens in this country and have to abide by the laws from another perspective. And we have to follow the laws as they are, uh, short of the point of violating ourselves you know, personally. So if like, I'm an employer, okay, I can't discriminate against, against that. You know, I can't make this a point of discrimination. I mean, I, I am an employer myself, but I've never, I've never faced this. So even though I always hear it's, it's so normal, it's all over the place and stuff like that, I mean, when, when, you, when I get down to it on a day-to-day -day basis, I haven't encountered it to be like that. I mean, I've run into people that are like that in, in the industry that I deal with and in my travels and stuff like that. And I deal with, with them, you know, at face value about what has brought us together. And then that's it. And that's what I mean by respect. I, I mean, I never, I never, you know, say, hi, my name is Tarek and you know, this is my sexual proclivity. I mean, I don't, and I don't, I don't, and I, and I think that that's offensive that somebody talks to me and says, hi, my name is such and such and I'm gay. Well, I don't say, hi, my name is Tark and I'm, I'm a heterosexual. N nor do I even say, hi, I'm Tark and I'm a Muslim. You know, if I'm doing a coffee thing, I said, this is my product, this is what I'm doing. If I'm speaking at a conference, I'm, I represent this institution. I mean, that's what I think is normal. So I, I also think there's a little bit of not fairness in, in, in that. Because when somebody comes and says, hi, you know, it's like when somebody says, hi, my name is so-and-so, and this happened to me, I'm Jewish, what do you think about suicide bombing? This is the first, I mean, so what are you, are you, are you ridiculous? We're, not, we're here to talk about some charity that we're working on. Why would you ask me that question? And he was like upset because he thought that this was like, I, I believe that it's a good thing and I was hiding it. I said, no, that's a dumb question. Why would, that's a very, that's a very offensive question, stupid question to ask. Of course I think it's wrong. But what, is this, what, is it, what if I said it, I think it's right? So that stuff is a little bit, I think, that's not respectful. Just like I wouldn't go and ask, what, you know, are you gay? You know, so I think that, that and maybe what I'm saying is not, is not foolproof, but I think that that's how I deal with everybody else that I meet. So I, I don't see why when it comes to that I have to 
have to be differently and, and, and answer differently. I mean, from, from a strictly uh, Sharia point of view, uh, living in this country, there's absolutely nothing wrong. Make the cake and say Mabruk and get, I mean, because this is, it's never, that's not how the Sharia, that's not how the Sharia works. No, because then they're going to go somewhere else and make the cake. It's not like the cake is going to make the ceremony or not. I mean, that's also very, very naive. But no, when, when you're a minority, the Sharia recognizes that you're a minority. So in, in the life of a Muslim minority, you can engage in things that you wouldn't be able, necessarily be able to engage in if you lived in a Muslim-majority country. That's just a rule all across all of the sections of fiqh, you know, and things like that. So in that case, like if somebody came to me and they wanted uh, coffee for their wedding or something and they were gay, okay, here's, here's please uh, you know, remit the invoice net 30, you know. Because look, what if somebody buys from me online without me knowing and they're going to do this or that or I, or I sell cakes online? I mean, there's so many ways of looking at it. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't worry about that. We shouldn't worry about that. Me making a stand is not going to make a difference. Uh, my question is, uh, I think it's a real question. If uh, the person is born with those kind of, uh, you know, so how could he, in Muslim families, I have seen it, like that pair, twin, brother and sister, so the brother is more towards like a girl habits and God has made them, Allah has made them. So how could he, I should have done this when I was in Egypt because I could have just said, you know, I'm too tired and I could have ended the class. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know, I don't know much about, about that side of the, of the topic. So I can't, uh, I can't fully answer. But I think one thing that is clear is that we are not just born a certain way. We are also, the environment around us allows us to explore the things that we, the inclinations that we have. So we are, another way of saying it is we are also a product of our environment. Not simply, no one is born in a vacuum. We are all born in, in some kind of uh, way. And yes, I mean, I have, I have in, not in this community, but in the Montgomery County community, I have been presented with this problem. People have reached out to me and they have, uh, you know, are struggling with this issue. Um, and it's difficult because it's something that I'm not used to, to dealing with. But um, just because I feel a certain way does not necessarily mean I have to act a certain way. Not just in this issue, but in any issue. And if we open this door that, well, I'm just like this, then eventually any type of proclivity that we think that we have, that means that we have the right to act on it. But we don't believe in that. Because we believe that there's something called a nafs al-amara basu. Your lower level nafs will cause you and call you and encourage you to do wrong things. 
So the Prophet ﷺ taught us when we have, when we, when we are at that level, our job is not to give in. Our job is to prevent ourselves from falling into the haram, to increase the level of ourself. Then maybe I can become a nafs al-lawama, then I can become the blameworthy nafs. So the, the, the Prophet ﷺ taught us to inwardly to go up, not just to give in to the way we are. So that argument, I, the, the problem with that argument is that, that it assumes whatever you feel like you can go with, whatever's on the inside you can go with, uh, you're, you're predestined to be like this, so what? And, and I don't think it's that simple. I think it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, but 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 you, there are people that have inclinations. No, I, I acknowledge that, but I feel like there, you probably have to get to a certain level to let it manifest itself in you. That's what I think. Yeah, it happens over time, and society allows it. Uh, uh, things, your environment can facilitate it or not facilitate it. Yes, personal decisions. Personal decisions exactly. So my the point is, you said something very important, which is you you might think something, but how you choose to act on it. That's, that's the issue, that's what I'm saying. So not everything that I feel like I want to do necessarily means I should act on it. That's not how our ethical system works. But even if it is, even if it is genetic, even if there is you know, a predisposition, that doesn't change the ethical construct of Islam, which is that people struggle with different things all the time and... and People can't lose weight. People can't quit addictions. People have, are more pr- prone to addiction than other people. This is genetic. So does it mean that I give in to my addiction? If I, have pro- if I, have, if I am inclined to an addiction, it means I have to be careful. If I'm, pro- if I'm genetically predisposed for addiction, and I go in for a surgery, and I have to take narcotics, which happened to me, and I am predisposed in my family genetically for addiction, I have to be very careful in managing the narcotics that I take. I was taking narcotics for six months. Three times a day, oxycodone. I mean, I was high for six months, <laughs> and it's, it was good. It was, you know, it was, yeah, it was, it was. I can tell you some funny stories. No, but I mean, I, so I had to manage that because I know going in that I, I have to take it and I have to be careful. So I, I can't be like, oh, it's okay. I can just give in. That's just the way I am. This could mess me up. I mean, I, it took me a year to, to to be my normal self after those six months. So not any inclination means you act on it. And not, it doesn't, and maybe we have different inclinations, this, that, maybe the environment is a, a way that affected it, maybe I was born this way, maybe it's a combination, but I have to, as you, I have to choose to act or choose not to act. Yes, sure, it does, sure. I mean, the, this, this young man who came to me, was definitely very much a product that things have been facilitated very easily for him to do. So I kind of have like two questions, if you don't mind. So uh, what practical advice would you give to a person that does have 
those inclinations. I mean, regardless if you think whether it comes from a choice or a birth or whatever, there are people who do exist that say, like, I mean, you're, so you're straight, right? So, like, I've had people who I, you know, at my school who are gay, and they say what you would feel if you were with a guy, that's how I would feel if I was with a girl, right? And the only other option you could really tell them, I mean, that I know of is, oh, just don't have sex ever. And obviously we don't want to, like, make haram things halal, but, like, what are you supposed to tell them? Because they do have a sex drive, even if we don't think that sex drive is okay, but, like... Are you talking about Muslims? I'm talking about, like, gay, gay people. Gay I mean, people, gay Muslims, I guess. Gay Muslims, you mean? Yeah. I mean, like, what are you supposed to do then? I mean, if somebody really has that question... Uh, they can come and talk to me. But if somebody's, if somebody's telling you that because they're arguing with you that you're not going to no, win... I mean, sure, there are some people who probably are doing it because they're arguing. But yeah, but you see, but the, the, but you get, it's like this guy that asked me what I thought about suicide bombing. He just wants to pick a fight with me. I mean, I don't, I'm not there to talk about that. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not going to be able to talk about that effectively. And if people want to pick a fight and they reduce everything to these like straw arguments... It's very hard to, to convince them because that, that statement that you said or that, you, that you're repeating that that person said makes a lot of false assumptions. One, saying no to this doesn't mean saying yes to this. Saying yes to this doesn't mean no to this. And there are degrees and there are there's the internal struggle and there's patience and, and, you know, and there's, there's, there's a million things that can be discussed. So like the, like the kid that came to me or the young man that came to me that has this issue, I'm trying to work with him because genuinely he's, you know, he wants help. He feels that there's an issue and he wants me to help him because he doesn't want Allah to be upset with him. That's very different than this like straw argument. Oh, well, this is how I feel and this is how, so what am I supposed to do not to have sex? I mean, if, honestly, yes. If that's, if that's, if, if that's the, if your whole life, some of your whole life, not you, but if the person's, if that person's, if the sum of your whole life is just that, then the answer is yes, you never have sex. But that's, that sex is not a, uh, it's a desire. It's not a need. It's not like water or food or air. Or, so if we take the desire and we make it the need, then yes, that's all we're going to say. So, so that, yeah, I can never have sex. Yeah, and then don't have any sex again. But that's not, the, that's not the real issue that we're talking about. So I think that these arguments, I don't, know, I don't like when people talk like that. Because I've, I've been in that, not on this issue, but on other issues. And it's just, it's just dumb. And um, one other thing also. So back to two or three years ago, whenever, whenever gay marriage was um, legalized, yeah, two years ago, um, a lot of people online, and I'm not going to mention names because you're being recorded, but uh, like, Famous people were saying... Uh, yeah, but I'm recording it. I can edit it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, like, famous people, right? Um, they were saying, oh, the story of loot doesn't explicitly prohibit homosexuality. It prohibits rape, right? So is there anything that's a little more explicit in, like, whatever, Quran? Or yes, and no, no, Lut, alayhi salam, says, تَأْتُونَ الرِّجَالَ shahwatan min dun he told the men of the Sodom, you are approaching sexually, shahwatan, men, and he's addressing men, you're approaching other men sexually instead of approaching women. I mean, that's pretty, does anyone not understand that statement? I think that was pretty clear. Look, if we wanted, nam, yeah, I mean, if we want to play, you know, gymnastics with the Quran and the Sunnah, were you here at Jummah? 
Yeah, it's not going to end well. Those people are going to end up uh, yelling in, uh, you know, uh, New York City, Allahu Akbar, and get shot in the rear. Like that fool that did. I mean, it's not going to end well because that's the same path. That's the, these people, these ISIS people, they're doing the same thing as the person that's saying it doesn't say that in the Qur'an. How, how on earth does it not say that? It's very clear. You don't like it, that's another story. You don't understand it, that's another story. As we said many times, and I'll keep repeating it, there's something called the text, understanding the text, and applying the text. From the text point of view, it's, it's clear, it's mujma alayhi, it's ma'lum min al-deen bid-darura, it's Islam. How do we apply the text? That's, going to be, that's what we're trying to struggle with each other. In this context, how do we struggle? What do we talk about? I'm a physician. I have a gay couple that comes to me and they want my assistance. My mother, for example, she has many uh, gay uh, uh, patients in her... She's never once stopped seeing them or stopped giving them medical treatment because she took an oath to help the sick. That's what the Hippocratic Oath is. So there, there's a ways to apply it. There's a ways to, to deal with it. But this idea, like I'm going to go back to the Qur'an and twist the Qur'an, it doesn't really say that. No, no, no. That's very, very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. You're advocating for her, so she's got some votes now. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Hassan? He was a soft man. Okay. So <laughs> when they were fighting yeah. in the battle of uh, <laughs> of the battle of Khandaq <clears throat> Sidna Hassan radiyallahu anhu he was hiding in the like the tent with the women because he's an artist. I mean he's not <laughs> so one of the sahabi women I can't remember which one because you know, the, the, some of the tribes of Medina sold the Muslims out. And they told the Quraysh where the Muslims were hiding, and where the weapons were, and where the food was, and things like that. So one of the people of Quraysh crossed into Medina, and found the tent, or, or like the hut, where they were hiding. So they turned to Sayyidina Hassan, and they said, go down. And, and, and he said, no, I don't. I just... I just I just rhyme, you know, I, I can't do these things. So she went down and she killed him. Yes, but it doesn't mean that he was, you know, gay or something like that. It just means that he was not like the warrior type. But he could rhyme and he could, he could compose poetry that we still say till today. وَأَجْمَلُ مِنْكَ لَمْ تَرَ قَطُّ عَيْنِي وَأَكْمَلُ مِنْكَ لَمْ تَلِدِ النِّسَاءِ when he comes and addresses the Prophet no, so Sidna Hassan is something else, but but somebody that can do that is not the person that's going to be so I don't know. I'm not sure. Nam. I give you a good example. Like we had a masculine 
<laughs> because if we keep going in these theoretics, we're not we're not gonna we're not gonna get very far. But I'm not saying we should compromise our values. I, I'm very clearly stating what we believe in. But we have to also we live amongst we're a minority. We live in a in a in a in a country that's extremely diverse, and we have to find a way to coexist with all all members of the community and the society. But but that doesn't mean me coexisting with somebody doesn't mean that I have to dissolve into that person and that person has to dissolve into me. It means coexisting. It means we both exist. Yes. But I should be allowed to respectfully state what I believe in and they should be allowed to respectfully disagree with me. But I should not be intimidated and beat into changing what I believe in because that's not fair. And that's not the way of the, this society is built. Yeah. Absolutely not. You only fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No. No, why should we? Yeah, we have to be much more, we have to be much more confident in our Islam than, I mean... Yani, you have to look at it like this. We have, you know, me, I have dealt with uh, leaders of almost every religious group and dialogued and communicated. I have dealt with people that hate Muslims. I dealt with a man who used to smuggle Qur'ans in water, uh, smuggle Bibles in water cartons sent to the U.S. armed forces in Iraq doing illegal missionary work to Muslims. And I have met with him and I have sat with him. I mean, this man is, is technically a criminal because these, are, these, these, these acts were illegal, internationally illegal, things like that. So why can't I deal with these people and talk with these people? I have dealt with people that have told me that their goal is to destroy Masjid al-Aqsa. I have met these people, openly have stated this. So why can I deal with somebody like this, talk with somebody like this, try to connect with someone like this, but not be able to connect with somebody that tells me that I'm gay? Or even more, I'm Muslim and I'm gay. No, I have no right. I have to be able to, to talk with everyone and to deal with everyone. Because all of these other people are not Muslim, but this is somebody who's, gay, who's Muslim and says I'm, I'm gay, or I have these tendencies, or I have this thing, or I, but I believe in the kalima. I believe in La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. If I have to respect that person as my brother, as my sister in Islam. So we should not be afraid. We should be much more confident in our Islam than that. No, nothing's going to happen if we, you know. No, no, because it's not dealing with these people, interacting with these people, transacting with these people does not mean you, you, uh, you agree with, with all of their acts. So if I'm the baker and I'm baking the cake, me baking the cake doesn't mean that I, that I condone what this person is doing. I'm just making a business transaction. He was living amongst them, yes, until he had left. Yeah. You have to turn up the volume.
but it's it's over. The, the, they won. They have uh, uh, marriage equality. What else is there to advocate for? But you see, this is one of those false things. Not you're saying it. I mean, they they are their rights are fully uh, protected and and uh, and afforded by uh, the federal level. What is there? What is what is left? What is the issue that is left for us to advocate for? for? In what sense? Yeah, but uh, but welcome to the family. I mean, this is this is the most this is one of the most racist uh, countries on the face of this earth. We have a major racist racism problem, xenophobic problem, homophobic problem, race problem. You know, uh, till this day. I mean, so I, so the issue is see that's what I'm talking about. This like, hi, my name is so and so. What do you think about suicide bombing? That's that's a dumb question. That's that, that's 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 not the issue. The issue is what is, what is the systemic problem behind intolerance in this country. So if it's about um, respect, uh, race equality, uh, you know, lack of discrimination across the board, yeah, those are things that we should be a part of because they affect all of us and this is not the values that this, that, that, that this country is, has been founded on. So it's not just that issue. You see, when we reduce it to just that issue, we get like put into this corner where we are forced to compromise. And we shouldn't compromise. But there's another way of dealing with it. And the way of dealing with it is the larger issue. The issue of privacy. No one talks about privacy. Except like you know, tech companies because they're just trying to... They have everyone's data and things like that. But seriously, privacy is a massive issue. I don't want anyone spying on me, listening to me. You know, there's cameras everywhere. Your phone is a camera. Everything is a... I, it's very scary. That's an issue. Privacy. The issue of discrimination, period. No one should be discriminated against, period. Whether they're, they're special needs, whether they are handicapped, they have a physical ailment, whether they have a mental ailment, whether, whatever. I mean, there's so, many types of disab- uh, there's so many types of discrimination. It's not just them. So if we are part of the anti-discrimination movement, for example, 